0: be You should be Hi, hi, hi. Welcome to What a Scream, the horror movie podcast, where I your host, e. grain chats with a special guest every week about horror films and in particular we talk about two films that have to do with a subject that I've previously randomly chosen. So this week myself and my special guest who is Preston Fossil will be talking about horror movies from the 1960s. Uh, So we are going to be discussing two films from that era, the first one being uh, Who Killed Teddy Bear from 1965 directed by Joseph Cates as well as the classic, the absolute cult queer classic, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane from 1962, directed by Robert Aldrich and starring the icons that are Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. Um, one of my favourite films from not only the era, but in general, one of my favourite films. I have very fond memories of this film. Um, so yes, This is my chat here with Preston Fossil about horror from the 1960s. So I would like to welcome to Water Scream, Preston Fossil. How are you? Oh, well,
1: thank you. How about yourself?
0: Uh, I'm very good. I'm very good. Um, I'm just off of six podcast recordings, so you're my last one of the day. (laughs) Oh, wow. I know, I know. Uh, Dedicated. Um, So would you like to introduce yourself to listeners and let them know what you do?
1: Uh, yeah, my name is uh, Preston Fossil. I'm a uh, horror writer in both uh, the nonfiction and fiction spheres. Uh, my nonfiction work has appeared in Fangoria, Rue Morgue, and on Cinnadump and the uh, DailyGrindhouse.com. Uh, and then on the fiction side of things, I'm a two-time independent publisher's gold medal for horror winner for my books, Our Lady of the Inferno and The Despicable Fantasies of Quentin Serginoff. Uh I was nominated for a rondo for book of the year for my biography of horror magazine founder Bill Landis. And I just recently had a new book come out through Cemetery Dance called Beasts of 42nd Street. Mm-hmm.
0: And how did you get into horror? And do you remember what the first horror film was you ever saw?
1: Yeah, it's a funny story because uh, my dad hates horror movies. Uh, He will not watch anything even remotely horror. Like it was a miracle I got him to watch Gore Verbinski's The Ring with me, which he actually ended up liking. (laughs) And me and my mom have always bonded over our love of horror movies. That was always a big activity for us growing up. And uh, we would go and see horror movies at the theater. Uh, When the Saw movies were coming out, it was a yearly tradition for us. We would go see the new Saw every year opening night. But it's my dad who got me into horror movies. (laughs) <laughs> uh, there was this string of movies back in the eighties, like Beetlejuice and the Monster Squad and mm-hmm. Ghostbusters that were these big crossover horror comedies. And my dad loved those. And he would show me these movies when I was like two, three years old. And I can still remember watching Beetlejuice with him and just losing my absolute stuff over the scene where he turns into the, uh, the, the snake banister, mm-hmm. uh, And I was screaming and crying and under the covers. And my dad was like, do you want to stop the movie? Do you want to stop the movie? And I said, no, I don't want to stop the movie. And then I wanted to watch it again after it was over.
0: Yeah, that's so funny because I had quite a similar experience that my parents, neither of them were into horror. Um, But it was actually them showing, and I guess with my old sister as well, them showing us stuff like, although it's not horror, Edward Scissorhands and Beetlejuice. And it was so funny because... You had that experience with Beetlejuice. I had that experience with Edward Scissorhands. And it's a really strange scene where he puts his scissor finger into a waterbed. And for some reason, that scared the absolute crap out of me. I don't know what it was about that scene, but it absolutely traumatized me. And But I didn't want to stop watching. They'd be like, what do you want to watch today? And I'd be like, Edward Scissorhands. And they'd be like, but you're scared of it. <laughs> so that's so funny. How yeah, like gateway yeah. horror, right? Get- yeah, scissor, yeah, 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 yeah. Um so we are covering today um 1960s horror um so what do you think about this era in horror
1: It's very push and pull for me because for me, the 60s in horror is this kind of crucible era where it starts to lose some of the elements that I think were holding it back in previous decades Mm -hmm. before it really emerges into the 70s, which I think is just one of the premier decades for horror Mm -hmm. cinema. Uh, But you can still see these leftover vestiges of horror being a little bit more hokey and a little more silly and kind of, I hate to say, like, Kid oriented, but like mm-hmm. in the 50s and the tail end of the 40s, their horror was very aggressively marketed to this like teen drive in crowd and to more uh younger audiences. And you see these 50 movies, like you know, Attack of the Crawling Eye with like this very visibly rubber monster, and yeah. you know, the theremin music. And it's uh, it was very watered down a lot of 50s horror and 40s horror and as we're moving into the 60s you start to see those elements getting stripped away with stuff like psycho uh, peeping tom uh you know the movies we're going to be talking about today and horror is starting to grow up it's you know mm-hmm. i kind of see the 60s as horror's kind of uh, adolescent phase where it's going through these growing pains and we're seeing these improvements and we're seeing it you know becoming an adult before we finally get into the 70s and it's like horror is here now mm.
0: yeah it was definitely like a almost like a liminal time in horror wasn't it it was quite a an in-between time um we had kind of previous to the 60s it was either like the sci-fi kind of you know it came from outer space style creature feature horror or it was very gothic um still kind of riding the wave of that almost universal well in America anyway and then obviously in the UK it was becoming hammer horror um And so it was funny because, and then, like you said, the seventies, it became like horror at home. It was very, you know, what was stuff like uh, the exorcist coming in, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It was all about horror in the back garden, basically. So the sixties was like a bridging between the Gothic and the at home horror. Um, And I have to admit, it is one of those eras that apart from Hitchcock, which I'm I'm just starting to kind of get into because of uh, my friend Rebecca McCallum, who does Talking Hitchcock podcast. She's kind of getting me into this uh, Hitchcock phase. Yeah, I was never really a big, because I'm such a big fan of the 70s, I was never a big fan of the 60s. It was like one of those eras that just kind of passed me by a bit.
1: It was the same for me because a lot of my early horror uh, love was informed by my relationship with my mom and the movies that she would show me. And she was young during that era, and she didn't really become a fan of horror until the 70s -hmm. uh, because she didn't really care for the Universal Monsters stuff. She didn't really care for the Alien Invasion movies. And it really wasn't until, I want to (sighs) say... I'm going to lose major points for this. I can't recall which came first, either The Exorcist or Alien. But whichever of those came first was like her first big positive theater going experience with a horror movie. And so when I'm coming of age and I'm a teenager and I'm like, okay, I want to start watching adult horror now. And I'm asking my mom for recommendations. She's throwing the 70s and forward at me. Uh, So I kind of had this bias against the 60s as well. Uh, I didn't really start getting into 60s horror until one one of the uh, cable stations here in the States, AMC, started regularly showing uh, old uh, 60s horror movies and mm-hmm. occasionally a synopsis would sound interesting or then when I was really getting more into like looking at horror through an academic lens and starting to see, OK, you know, there are good solid 60s horror films this is this you know seminal period in horror it's not just all the silly stuff but uh i've I've got a very similar blind spot
0: yeah um so obviously like i've watched psycho and i've I've seen peeping tom um and from these two films or one of the films that we're going to talk about voyeurism seems to be a massive theme within 60s horror i'm wondering what was going on in that era that people were like everyone's bit. whether it was like the birth of like television or not so much like the birth of television but more and more people were getting television sets in their homes and technology like cameras were becoming a bit more somewhat accessible to people so i'm wondering whether that had an influence on the themes of the horror films
1: you know, that's a really fascinating observation. I had never thought about that before, but you're absolutely right. Uh, Peeping Tom, you know, Norman Bates looking through the hole in the wall. Uh, there's this really great late 60s uh, British horror film called uh, Mumsy, Nanny, Sunny and Girly made by Freddie Francis. And like kind of this omnipresent observance of all the people within this manor house is a big key in that film. That's that's something to think about. That's that's a very interesting observation.
0: Thank you. Sometimes I come out with intelligent things. Not all the time, just sometimes. <laughs> um. So let's get started then on your choice of film. Would you like to introduce it and give a brief synopsis, please?
1: Yeah. So, uh, "Who Killed Teddy Bear" is a Salminio fronted uh, serial killer thriller.
0: It's Nora. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I'm Lawrence. <laughs> so
1: well. i know every area that uh for many years was and to this day still is relatively difficult to see uh i th- think i sent you a tubi link or was it a youtube
0: uh i found it on youtube yeah
1: okay yeah and then two it's on tubi but i think mm. i think everything's on tubi here in the states i think that tubi is being run by some sort of paranormal entity that has access to just about <laughs> everything Uh, But it's a uh, movie about a woman who works in a discotheque who comes to realize that she is being stalked by a serial killer who intends to make her his next victim. And in the resulting fallout of this, she ends up moving in with the detective who is investigating the case. And the detective is this figure that you see a lot in 1970s movies he's kind of a prototypical here of the deranged cop who is becoming just as dangerous as his prey and this police officer has become all consumingly obsessed with tracking down the serial killer who's played by sal minio who was trying to use this movie as an opportunity to kind of break out of the uh the mold that he had been cast into by hollywood and for the the time it's made, for anybody listening to this, it's an incredibly upsetting film. It's an incredibly upsetting mm-hmm. film today. But mm-hmm. just imagine being a 60s audience. And this is a very, very frank movie in terms of its depiction of violence and sexual violence and the psychology of serial killers. Uh, it was very upsetting to audiences of the day, which is what led to its kind of going underground for many years
0: yeah i was quite surprised cuz it starts off and i'm kind of like ah yeah you know kind of basic you know mystery almost and then it gets into kind of more the the final sequences and i was like jesus like wow i was not expecting that um it's like we said it is an explore- exploration of voyeurism um and it also has this underlying thing as like I guess this was coming becoming big in the 60s, but like is porn an instigator of uh, violent crimes? Um, we see the uh, antagonist Lawrence who turns out to be, so the the woman Nora is receiving these really gross phone calls and it turns out he is behind them. And we see him going into a lot of, you know, nudie shops and, and into sex shows and, um, And it's kind of hinted at as like, this is one of the reasons why he's turned to sexual violence and sexual harassment. Um, What did you think of that portrayal?
1: It's interesting because uh, that came out of this very particular geographical anxiety at the time. So the movie really gravitates around Times Square and more specifically 42nd Street in New York. Mm And this was happening at a time when New York was starting to transition into what we call the Midnight Cowboy era. And uh, going back to what you were saying about televisions becoming a big force at this time, uh, that devastated the New York movie theater industry uh, because post-war, they had built all of these colossal movie theaters intended to attract returning war veterans and their families who were now you know very upwardly mobile as a result of the economic boom. And then those theaters all shuttered and the industry around those theaters shuttered and they were reopened by local distributors and uh, exploitation filmmakers and went from showing Casablanca and Gone with the Wind to showing movies like Who Killed Teddy Bear. And as a result of this, the area around 42nd Street and Times Square went from this prosperous cosmopolitan crossroads of the world into the red light district mm-hmm. and uh this movie is really an examination i think of the anxieties surrounding that and is this what's going to happen
0: mm-hmm. yeah and i guess even though this was made in 1965 so you know quite a few years ago it you could still kind of relate it back to perhaps the internet and how when the internet came out and everyone was super you know has accessibility to porn did that see an upsurge in sexual violent crimes so i guess even though it was done in 1965 i love it when films even from that era, you can still kind of relate to somewhat not that i believe that you know porn or anything relates to an upsurge it does to a certain extent because it you know relates to unrealistic um, expectations of sex but yeah i thought it was an interesting um exploration of this subject um it also has a depiction of lesbianism, which it's quite a throwaway scene, but it, it was quite interesting. I mean, obviously of the time, we're coming off the back of, you know, the Hayes Code, which had dogged Hollywood for quite a long time. And, you know, you weren't allowed to to show lesbianism or any sort of um, uh, homo- homosexuality. And it was still quite... Um, you know not kind of shown in cinema and so i feel like the depiction of this character who could be queer is quite bad um what did you think of that scene
1: i think it, it felt very part and parcel of the the view of queer people at the time mm. uh you know it's uh very much plays into the the, predato- the predatory older lesbian stereotype mm. and it's really feels like parts of the the culture of that day. Uh, yeah. It's, yeah. Of course, that's also another Forty Second Street stereotype. I know it's a very broad stereotype, but then also very specifically on Forty Second mm-hmm. Street, there there were lesbians who had businesses there and who found a place for themselves in these industries because yeah. there wasn't perhaps as much stigma. And so the stereotype arose out of the you know the boss lesbian woman who runs the strip show or mm-hmm. who runs the porno store, and it mm-hmm. you know, also feels like it's very much a reflection of that. Uh, a lot of the characters in here are maybe not so lovingly done representations of people that I feel like the writer really knew in real life Mm. and encountered, you know, in the Times Square scene of that time.
0: Yeah. Um, Yeah, I I felt like that scene was quite disturbing, but more towards its depiction of, you know, a queer older woman. Um, Like you kind of mentioned in the synopsis, the cop, he's a bit weird, isn't he? Like, he's a bit he's he's i mean he's got his own trauma in his life with the death of his wife with the very violent death of his wife but he's very obsessed with playing these tapes of like victim statements but like his daughters in the next room and it's just it's really disturbing and then how close he gets to um the the protagonist as well um it's just he's like no guy in this film really comes off well do they
1: <laughs> no I think the only person in the movie who comes off well is uh, Nora and then the little girl. I think yeah. they're the only two, <laughs> and then then Larry's sister. But uh, I think they're the only sympathetic characters in this movie. Everybody else is a really scary deviant who's just yeah. as dangerous as the next one. And you know that scene of the little girl laying in bed, listening through the wall to the witness statement tape yeah. in the next room, that to me is one of the scariest scene in the movie. And that's something that's always stuck with me, just how yeah. unsettling it is.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean the fact that he can't, literally, cannot separate his work from his home life, and you know he's doing more damage to his daughter than uh, you know he he probably even realizes. Um, so, the the sequence where Nora discovers that Larry is uh, the the guy on the phone and he attacks her is like we said, it's really horrific. But what I found perhaps even more horrific was when uh, you know the the rape happens and she's just sitting there like really like in shock kind of really stony and then the police guy comes in beats up Larry and then goes over to Nora and just cries at her like i couldn't get my head around that what did you think about that whole reaction <laughs>
1: I have always wondered what they were thinking with the end of the movie, because mm. with everything they've built up with the cop character, I was just expecting him to come in there and just blow Larry's head off. Yeah. And I don't know, because they do, they do not set this guy up as a character who, he has this, uh, this vendetta against sex criminals, and yeah. you just get the impression that this guy is just waiting for the excuse to kill, to kill one of them. And I mean, here it is, it is presented to him. We have seen no indicators that this is a kind and gentle man who is, you know, just going to take somebody into custody and he like slaps him around and it's almost seems silly the way he's just like grabs Larry and like backhands him a couple of times and I've always wondered like was just executing him too far for the producers was Mm -hmm. that a uh a restriction put on them by creatives because everything in that script is leading up to him coming in there and just executing this guy uh the ending has just never felt quite right to me
0: yeah no it doesn't to me it's just really strange like he he lets him get away as well you're just kind of like would he he have done that like would he not have apprehended him and you know, maybe I've just been watching far too much Criminal Minds recently that I'm like, oh, is that prevent him first? Um, but yeah, and it just felt really uncomfortable how it's almost as if he centers himself within Nora's trauma and that he just starts crying at her. And you're like, you gobshite, like, you know, and that's why would you cry at her? She's the one that's just gone through this. Like, so, yeah, it feels it does feel like a very, very strange ending to this film. Definitely. Um, So why did you choose Who Killed Teddy Bear?
1: It's one of these movies that I feel really deserves a uh, rediscovery and reappraisal. It's many aspects of it, as you have pointed out, have certainly not aged well. But I also think that it's a very provocative and Mm. very interesting piece of cinema, especially for the time that it came out of. And I feel like you can look at this thing from so many different perspectives, and you know, get so much great material out of this thing. Looking at it from a, a queer perspective, looking at mm-hmm. it from a historical perspective, and the snapshot it captures of the Times Square underground as it was just beginning mm-hmm. to really emerge. Uh, looking at it in broad cinematic history, uh, the version I believe the version that I sent you is the uncut version of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's scenes in there that were edited out in an attempt to make it more broad appeal. And one of the scenes that had to be cut out was depiction of interracial dancing. And that was Mm -hmm. actually an element of this movie that was incredibly controversial at the time that it was released, because in 1965, interracial dancing was still illegal in parts of the country. And so just to get this movie distributed across the U uh, S scenes of people dancing and not even very provocatively, it's, you know, mm-hmm. very, you know, kind of hokey, but that had to get cut out. Uh, the scene of Nora at the swimming pool had to get cut out because that was considered too sexually explicit, uh, Sal Minio going to the gym had to be cut out because yeah. that was considered coded homosexual. Uh, and so, you know, there's so much to talk about with this thing and so few people know about it because of these weird rights issues surrounding it. Uh, don't quote me on this, but I tried to run down who, and interrupt me at any point, this is your mm-hmm. podcast, so I don't want to just ramble on. <laughs> um i tried to track down who owned the rights to these things to see Mm -hmm. if i could get somebody like severin or arrow interested in picking them up and what happened was some company just bought up all of these assets in what was either a forfeiture or a bankruptcy and this movie and several other movies and like some songs are just like in the catalog now of some corporation that just buys assets And it's like not anything that they know anything about. It's not anything that they're interested in. It's basically the cinematic equivalent of going to a rummage sale and you buy a jewelry box and you open it up. And inside you find like some kind of like antique piece of machinery. Mm -hmm. And it's like you wanted the jewelry box, but now you've also got this as well. And that's more or less what happened to Who Killed Teddy Bear. And that's why it's so difficult to, to get your hands on and even see uh I think that's the UK is the only region in the world where it's ever received a commercial DVD release, and I'm still not entirely certain how that happened.
0: Wow, okay. that's bizarre kind of. <laughs> um, yeah, I as much as I was like, oh, it's a really bad depiction of this, that and on. I actually really enjoyed this film, um, a because I did like the shock tactics employed especially because i wasn't expecting it for a 1960s film but there's just loads of um like i said i've been watching criminal minds i'm really into the mind of a serial killer i like i really enjoy that kind of um viewpoint and especially when we're introduced to edie which is uh lawrence or larry's uh little sister that he feels responsible for because she has a brain injury because she saw him having sex which is possibly with their mother is that like that was one of the, the the things that it was possibly incest that made her run and fall um which is another shocking thing so yeah I quite enjoyed this film for for kind of shock value
1: I was gonna say it's just really great for from so many angles and then like you're talking about the psychological factor there's like for a movie that's so seedy in so many other mm. ways and so uh, um what's the word I'm looking for Uh, that has so many blind spots and Mm -hmm. so many regards like the criminal psychology in here is incredibly realistically depicted Mm -hmm. uh for especially a movie of this time it's like some pre silence of the lambs type stuff Uh, i've actually got a uh degree in ab psych and like watching this i was like wow they like did their homework with this
0: yeah yeah um so i take it you'd recommend this to horror fans then
1: oh most definitely
0: yeah I, I would recommend it because I almost felt a bit Black Christmas vibes from it. Um, especially with the phone calls. The phone calls are really creepy. Like he's lying there in his underwear and they're so creepy. And I was just like, it really reminds me of Black Christmas. So I, I kind of like to think that it's almost like horror history where you can see the ancestral line from here to like something like Black Christmas.
1: They had not made that connection before.
0: another connection i've made today um so let's move on to my choice then um which although i said the 1960s was a blind spot for me this film like i have loved this film for many many years um even before i started like heavily getting into my horror history um so i chose whatever happened to baby jane
1: ladies and gentlemen baby jane hudson I wonder if you can guess who I am. I'm Baby Jane Hudson.
0: Who the hell was Baby Jane Hudson? I've written a letter to Daddy
1: saying I love you.
0: My sister doesn't ever go out. She's um, not fit to receive visitors.
1: Jane, I want to talk to you. I'm afraid I have bad news. We'll probably have to sell the house.
0: You aren't ever going to sell this house. And you aren't ever going to leave it. Uh, the 1962 psychological horror directed by Robert Aldrich, which is adapted from the 1960 novel by Henry Farrell. And it stars the iconic... Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. Um, and they play sisters. Uh, Betty Davis plays Baby Jane Hudson, who was a child star. Um, and then as an adult, she cannot quite break into Hollywood. Whereas her sister, who was um quite ignored and ignored as a child, played by Joan Crawford, then goes on to become a massive Hollywood star. And one day, um, baby Jane Hudson runs over her sister Blanche and causes her to become constricted to a wheelchair. And we see them in their older years now. Blanche relies on Jane for everything. Jane is very bitter towards Blanche. And yeah, it becomes this real kind of gaslighting psychological warfare between the pair of them. Um so. Are you a fan of Whatever Happened to Baby Jane?
1: Yes. And as you were saying before, oh, I'm not a fan of 60s mm. horror. But for me, I I said earlier, my mom didn't really show me anything but 70s horror. But she did show me this. Yeah. Betty Davis is her all-time favorite actress. And because yeah. this has you know such horror vibes, this is one that she showed me. And so this is one I've been a fan of probably since I was about 15, 16. Uh, it's just brilliant. It's just brilliant.
0: It is. I found this film because I was in college in university at the time. And um I went into the local like DVD store and I saw this. And the front cover just looked really just dist- it's like their their profiles in like black borders and like a colored profile. And it just looked really weird. And I, yeah. I I'd just seen Psycho, because I'd bought Psycho on DVD as well. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna watch this as well because it looks weird. And I like Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. And I put it on and it just shook me. Like it absolutely shook me. It's so disturbing on another level. Like it's just so weird. And then when also you know about their real life rivalry, you're like, oh, it's even better just for knowing that. <laughs>
1: And talking about the psychological realism of who killed Teddy Bear, they crank that up to 12 in this. The dynamic between them is just so real. And you have met people like this where Mm. they are like trapped in a relationship for whatever reason, be it because they are family, like in this, or if they've like have some kind of intense friendship or personal connection. And it's like they absolutely despise one another. And yet they're driven together by this thing and it becomes like just this like this toxic Ouroboros that you can't escape. And the writing is just so fantastic and how it gets into both of their minds and depicting the dynamic between the two of them. It's Mm. it's just brilliant.
0: Yeah. I mean the first one obviously when I first got into it, I was very much like, oh baby Jane is, you know, she's a terrible person, which she is. But then I can see it from her point of view. Now, looking back, I'm like, you know what? I can kind of relate to both of them. You know, Joan Crawford's character, Blanche, she was ignored as a child and she she really had to wait for her for her kind of time. And then it was taken away from her cruelly. But then you're like, baby Jane was manufactured by her dad that forced her to not be a child and to be this performing monkey, basically. And so you know, she was told she was famous and she was a star as a child. And then when that was kind of taken away from her as an adult, you can really see like the psychological effects that it had on her and that now she is kind of trapped in this child star mentality um, that doesn't quite relate to her reality. And so I I kind of like the way that, yes, it's horrific, but we can kind of see it from each person's point of view.
1: And my favorite scene in the movie is where she gets all dialed up and tries to do her old childhood routine yeah. and of course it's Betty Davis now like in this this ghoulish makeup yeah. and i imagine that in color it would probably be even more lurid than it looks on yeah. screen and trying to sing like this song intended for a little girl yeah. and it's just like simultaneously so cringe inducing and yet at the same time you get why she's doing it and mm. I can't think off the top of my head another scene in a movie where they managed to make you feel such revulsion and such sympathy yeah. and such cringe all at once. And the unique combination of emotions that comes from that is just really wow,
0: yeah. Um, so this film was basically the creation of what they now call the psychobiddy genre, <laughs> or I guess ha- exploitation. Um, What do you think of this genre? Do you think, like obviously this isn't as bad as perhaps what we've seen in recent releases like um, X and uh, Barbarian, like it's not not as exploitative, but what do you think of the Psycho Biddy genre?
1: I think that's done well and done respectfully. It can be a cool and fun subgenre in addition mm-hmm. to the horror canon. Uh, you know, we have movies with like scary, creepy old guys. The the creepy old guy is basically a stock figure in horror. Mm-hmm. And uh kind of the same way that movies like Girls Trip and Bridesmaids serve as this corollary to bro comedies where it's boys behaving badly, and mm-hmm. you know, why can't we have films with girls behaving badly? I feel that's you, you know, psycho-bitty exploits is a great opportunity for older female actresses to you know cut loose and be mm-hmm. horror villains and have fun with it.
0: Yeah, as long as I, as long as it doesn't kind of cross that line into like ooh, aren't old bodies ooh um, which I feel quite a lot of the recent films did um, when we're talking about you know opportunities for older women to play villains, this film really does touch on the fact of how Hollywood treats aging women. And, you know, we definitely see it with older men. They're still quite marketable and, you know, they're silver foxes, whereas older women, they find it quite hard to still be marketable in Hollywood. And I kind of feel like this film touches on that as well. What do you think?
1: I think it's a really cool kind of meta thing going on because it's mm. a movie about with two older women about mm. how Hollywood doesn't make movies with older women. And like, they're mm. kind of using this opportunity as a, uh, this movie as an opportunity to make that commentary and i think it makes for this great almost scream level uh meta-referential element going on
0: yeah and we even see it with um so blanche is finding herself to have a bit of a revival because of the television kind of um throwing it back to our television uh theme that it's it's only through these old films of her as a young person that she's now getting a revival, but like you said, it's kind of meta because from whatever happened to Baby Jane, Joan Crawford and Betty Davis had a bit of revival after this film as well. Um, so yeah, I think it's like a really interesting exploration of that, even as far back as the sixties. You know, before we even had this talk of ageism in Hollywood, it was still obviously a big thing for this film to be
1: made. It's uh, older women in Hollywood seems to be one of these things where it's like Hollywood talks about it for five minutes and says, they're Mm -hmm. going to do something. And then, you know, 10 years later, another big movie comes out with older actresses and says, Oh, we don't do enough. We're going to do something. Uh, I remember, uh, Around the success of everything, everywhere, all at once, people Mm -hmm. asking, is this finally when Hollywood is finally going to realize that there are Asian audiences who wants to see movies that tell their stories? Mm -hmm. And a uh, friend of mine is an Asian screenwriter who has been in the industry for several years. And he told me, you know, this is sadly something that I have seen come in waves. He said the Joy Luck Club came out in the early 90s and was a tremendous success. And we all thought, oh, Hollywood is finally going to get it now. And then that faded away. And then I can't remember Mm -hmm. what movie he said was kind of next in the cycle. It was another Asian-American film that was incredibly successful. Mm -hmm. And he says, oh, and all my screenwriter friends and I thought, oh, this is where it's finally going to happen. Now they're going to realize. And it feels like it's something similar with older actresses getting Mm -hmm. solid roles, something like whatever happened to Baby Jane comes along. Hey, older actresses are still viable. People still want to see them. Yeah. And then, you know, here we are having this conversation, what, 50 years later?
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, so another kind of thing that I picked up on it was the abuse of disabled people by their carers, which is unfortunately um, a very, a very real and sad truth. Um, what did you think of that depiction?
1: It's another one of these things where uh, I don't know if they were intentionally drawing on this being a real phenomenon, but Mm -hmm. where they stumbled across actually depicting something that you would not think would be portrayed in a film of this vintage. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's amazing to me that we even get to see the character in a wheelchair at all. I think Mm -hmm. that was a daring choice because disability in cinema at that point was really i think kind of relegated to disfigured villains or like tragically disfigured war heroes and it's mm-hmm. like either you're a good guy with a cosmetically appealing sexy scar across his face or mm-hmm. you're the phantom of the opera and you're like some melted faced ghoul but other than that you don't really see disability portrayed that much in cinema of this vintage and so I think that was kind of groundbreaking in and of itself uh, My uh, one of my writing colleagues Caitlin Nelson uh, this is her stock and trade really in writing about uh, depiction mm-hmm. of disability and horror I'm sure she would just have a ton to say about this mm-hmm. uh, but uh, it's, it's really interesting she just see that at all
0: yeah it's yeah I again it's something I didn't pick up on when I first watched this because I was quite ignorant but looking back at it now I'm like it has so much to say about whether it's you know abusive disabled people or you know, a fear of aging, the treatment of aging women in Hollywood, tr- uh, child trauma, which is another big one. You know, we see in uh, Baby Jane that from her child trauma of not being allowed to be a child, she is now regressing and trying to get back her her heyday. So I think it's such a rich film that you wouldn't really expect from a film of, you know, this this kind
1: of era. It's just fantastic. Yeah. And that ending. Betty Davis yes. dancing on the beach is an image that lives
0: rent-free yeah. in my
1: mind forever.
0: Yeah, I heard that Joan Crawford was quite annoyed that Betty Davis got a lot of um uh you know accolades kind of for this this performance of hers and she was like I was in this film as well and you're like you were but this was a Betty Davis film like for me I just feel like this was a Betty Davis film.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, she gets all the great lines. I mean, the character is written so bombastically. Mm -hmm. You know, she is the Joan Crawford is the straight man person in this to Betty Davis's raging id.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, So do you think that whatever happened to Baby Jane has, I mean, I know we've touched on a few other films, but do you think it has any sort of legacy or influence in modern day horror?
1: Oh, gosh, I think that could be the topic of its own podcast. I mean, you know, it it did, you know, it laid the groundwork for the whole psycho bitty exploitation mm-hmm. subgenre that has, you know, kind of ebbed and flowed over the years. That's not a subgenre I'm super well versed in. So I'm not the mm-hmm. best person to comment on, like, its trends and its uh, patterns over the years. Uh, and then, like, uh, just this, this great dynamic between these two characters, uh, mm-hmm. I think that it showed... That you can have a horror movie that exists in a Maloo outside of an isolated cabin or an isolated castle. Mm. Uh, Something I love about it is how very open it is. Uh, I always feel that a lot of times when horror movies try to be open and have multiple locations and take place in this wide world that they start to lose their power. And a lot of the best horror films are things like The Shining, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre that are very isolative. And here we get you know, multiple locations, lots of scenes in daylight, uh, lots of scenes that are just characters having these conversations, and yet it still manages to land and still manages to have a tremendous impact and I think it's certainly a uh, great masterclass in demonstrating how you can pull that off.
0: Mm, I definitely think it's it's almost one of the the originals of like familial horror that, you know, horror could be your own sister or, you know, one of your relatives. So you're not safe. <laughs> watch out for that jealous sister. Um, so if someone came to you and were like, I want to watch a 1960s horror, but I've only got these two uh these two DVDs or Blu-rays, which one would you tell them to watch over the other?
1: It's super tough for me because one part of me wants to give the uh, Who Killed Teddy Bear that exposure. And I'm very personally interested in that era in Times Square and 42nd Street Underground Mm. History. And I love sharing that with people. But in terms of cinematic importance and in terms Mm. of quality and in terms of uh, historical value, it's got to be Baby Jane.
0: Yeah, I I'm kind of the same. I'm finding it quite difficult to choose. Like a lot of times I have quite a clear winner, but I think they're both obviously who killed Teddy Bear didn't get as much of a um kind of infamy. But I still think it's quite important for its portrayal of the time and the location and you know where criminal psychology was at the time. But whatever happened to Baby Jane is absolutely iconic and I think if you haven't seen it, then you need to rush out and see it now. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think I would go for whatever happened to Baby Jane. Um. So do you think, kind of following on from the Baby Jane question, do you think that the 1960s still have a strong influence in modern horror? Or do you think it's very of its time and perhaps it's very isolated in that era?
1: Oh no, I feel that there's, Elements of the 60s horror that are just mm-hmm. key for the history of the genre. I mean, this is what gives us Night of the Living Dead. This is what gives mm-hmm. us whatever happened to Baby Jane, uh, Psycho. Uh, this is where horror starts to really spread its wings and mm-hmm. start to buck against the censors, buck against certain societal restraints. Uh, without the 60s, we wouldn't have gotten the 70s. And mm-hmm. for that alone, it's it's valuable as a... As a, as a, as a valuable as a time and place in horror history and i'm sure that there are many films out there like who killed teddy bear that are these like flew under the radar movies Mm. that uh didn't get the exposure that they necessarily warranted at the time but that maybe certain people saw and were influenced by and you know were uh inspired by that we don't necessarily know about but that had an impact on the filmmakers of the time
0: Mm. yeah i definitely agree with you um I definitely think there's still films out there that are influenced by the 60s, whether they realize it or not. There's always going to be that vein of, of 1960s horror in modern horror. Um, so before we go, I always ask my guests, what is your favorite horror film?
1: Yeah, I used to be really pretentious about this question. And there's like even an interview I did with a newspaper somewhere where it's a little sidebar and it says Preston doesn't like one horror movie. Preston says he has six favorite horror movies. But I've (laughs) I've just got to be I've got to be honest. It's The Shining. It's the Jack Nicholson Shining. I just think it's a brilliantly made movie. It does so much right. It's such an immersive experience. You really feel like you're at the Overlook Hotel. And there's just so much detail put into so many small aspects aspects of it that they're there just to unsettle you uh my wife and i recently got to see the 4k restoration mm. um, uh at the movie theater and the sound design in that i had never realized before it's almost subliminal there's like aspects mm. to that soundtrack that just get into your head and make you feel uncomfortable just there's so much right about that it's it's the shining mm.
0: i i wouldn't say that the shine is one of my favorite films but it is one of those films where I can appreciate it for being an amazing work of cinematic arts and how much, like you said, how much detail went into it and how frame by frame you can analyze it till the cows come home. Like you could yes. literally do a whole podcast series on it. And something I really like, and I really appreciate about other films as well is when you can watch it five, 10 times but you're always going to find something new about it and something that you hadn't noticed beforehand. And I think that's really special about a film. So while it is not one of my favorites, because I was one of those snobs that was like, the book is so much better than the film. (laughs) um, I can absolutely appreciate it.
1: That's such a true point, too. Every every time I watch it, I see something different. Uh, I really want to get the 4K DVD, because when we saw it at the movie theater, mm-hmm. in the scene where Wendy is talking to the psychiatrist about Danny, one, I never realized just how many books are in the room with them, and mm-hmm. two, you can see the names of the books on the spines, mm-hmm. and I would just love to go through and see every single book they have in that room of the house.
0: Yeah, yeah it's stuff like that that makes me want to go out and get you know the the 4k restoration of it um so yeah thank you so much for coming on and if people would like to find you on social media where can they do so
1: i'm at preston fossil on twitter uh p-r-e-s-t-o-n-f-a-s-s-e-l and uh, you can always type my name into amazon and hit search if you'd like to check out any of my books
0: So that was my chat there with Preston Fossil about 1960s horror. And we talked about 1965s Who Killed Teddy Bear as well as 1962s Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. So let me know, what did you think of this episode? Do you like 1960s horror? Are you a fan of this era? Do let us know on Twitter while it is hopefully still going at what underscore scream as well as as on instagram what a scream and don't forget to rate review subscribe to whatever platform you are listening to me on thank you so much for listening um and don't forget to stay horrific goodbye